Ladies, gentlemen, non-binaries, it is cold as hell outside. I'm recording this podcast from the workshop amidst a really terrible winter storm. But I will persevere. The hardest job in the world, obviously, is podcasting. Um, Very few people can do it. And I am here in a seat of great privilege to deliver this audio message to you. Uh, It's the Stazapod. We got questions today. Let's get going. To start us off today, I'm going to go right to the Discord for some questions I missed last week. For those who don't know what the Discord is, maybe you got a big question mark above your head. It is a top secret message board, essentially, that uh, you can access by being a Patreon member at patreon.com slash Just five bucks gets you access to this deep forest community where there are no trolls and uh, the trades and the selling and the nights grow on trees. It's a wonderful place. Um, so, in my haste last week, I left out a couple questions. Let's get those taken care of right now. Starting with Bunny, they say, Hello Kitty and Playmobil celebrate their 50th birthday this year. Could you talk about events like these? If they are anything to be excited about as a consumer or if they are just PR slash marketing talking points. And am I right in thinking Knights of the Slice will be 10 next year? Uh, Below this, Domu points out that Microman turns 50 this year as well. So very exciting stuff. Um, That is correct. Knights of the Slice will be celebrating their 10th anniversary next year. I have something in the works. Um, Taking a couple meetings in the next week or two about it. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to celebrate that that, uh, 10th year anniversary together. We shall see. Um, So significance. I I think that really, if you look at this 50-year period, um, it's kind of a a very interesting uh, sort of bookend, right? Because this, this world we live in today is one of mass commercialization, mass licensing plays, action figure deal, comic book deal, movie deal, animated series deal... This is all stuff that has sort of come into focus within this 50 years. And, it, and it's become, obviously, an enormous business, but an enormous piece of the worldwide culture of human beings at this moment. Um, I think you can kind of make the argument that after the first 20 years, maybe 30 years, new ideas stop being perpetuated, and that leaves us in the tail end of this 50-year block with just regurgitation of the same old properties over and over again but um for me personally i think it's significant so hello kitty microman playmobil these are all brands that are kind of still around in some way shape or form now i don't think microman's had a meaningful relaunch and it's probably due time that that happens but playmobil and hello kitty those have existed since i was a kid and they seem to be pretty intent on continuing on that path Regarding the 50th anniversary, I mean, uh, yeah, look, it's it's a way for marketing teams to justify their existence, right? And they should be throttling that, and they should be introducing, I don't know, uh, you know, retro product that looks exactly like the figures or the content did 50 years ago. Um, but, you know, much like me spending time with the Subcultures documentary and really, like, scratching my head at why everything looks the same as it did 20 years ago... Uh, You know, I I kind of feel the same way about those brands in modern day. Um, Well, in the case of Microman, it's it's sort of non-existent. But, you know, I I guess ultimately, if people are looking for me to weigh in, if Hello Kitty or Playmobil or Microman means something to you, then sure, I, I think totally appropriate to celebrate the things we like. There's no reason to sort of deny yourself that. But personally, the only celebration I'm excited about, the only anniversary I'm excited about, the only possible relaunch I'm excited about is Snailians. Next Discord question from Cappy. How's your driveway holding up miraculously? Now, we've had we've had a couple spats of really bad storms uh, since the start of this year and even a little bit in December uh, with some pretty heavy-duty flooding, and thankfully the driveway is still intact. For, for those who don't know, Of course, my phone is buzzing. Why not? Absolutely. Please do that. Um, 
For those who don't know, during the summer, right before Toy PizzaCon, my we had this freak flash storm that had flooding everywhere. There were cars underwater. It was it was insane, and uh, my driveway got washed completely away. There was no way to cross it. Uh, my good friend uh, from Australia was stuck here. He he attempted to drive out and uh, quickly turned around and retreated back to our house. Um, it was really a big deal. And then a few days later, another storm washed away the temporary sort of uh, pave over that we had done, and we were back at square one once again. Um, it has certainly been tested, not to the ferocity of those storms last year, but it's definitely been battered. Uh, however, the sort of repaving um, has stuck in a place. Now, part of, the, part of the issue is there's a stream that my driveway goes over in two different sections, and that stream quickly becomes raging rapids if it is, uh, you know, heavy rains out there. So, um, with any luck, it will hold. We have had some flooding. The workshop suffered uh, quite a tremendous leak. Um, you know, I, 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 I hate to uh, bring this up, but I do think that this is going to become more and more commonplace. 2023 was the hottest year on record. I think they have officially said that. And the sort of these aberrations of weather and the frequency of them are going to become more and more commonplace. Uh, you can draw your own conclusions about why that is, but um, I think we're all going to have to be dealing with this on a regular basis. And for those curious, my driveway had to be paid out of pocket. There was no FEMA reimbursement. There was no help from the government or anything like that. And I think the, the reality is more and more people, if they survive said weather events, are going to end up uh, becoming bankrupt from the damages that are done. And uh, it would be, it sure would be nice to have a cohesive federal response to those sort of things, but uh, that may be asking for too much in this day and age. Next up on the Discord, a question from Wolfman Toys. When are we getting back to Harbor Noir? Um, you know, I haven't thought of that locale in a long time, I will be honest. I, I suppose we will get back there when the great story in the sky dictates that we go back there. Um, let me just do a quick sort of mental checklist here of what releases we have coming up. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't see that as being a setting in the immediate future. Um, you know, we, we obviously, later this year, we got to spend a lot of time on the, on the open seas, as it were. Um, we got to get back to Neo Neo Miami at some point. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's an open question. It it remains to be seen. Okay, now making our way over to the official Patreon questions this week. Always a fun time to review these. First up, Gordon McKinnon Hall. You've mentioned multiple times looking outside of toys for visual inspiration. Are music videos and iconography used by artists an influence? Related, is the visual language of Zed Star 7 its own thing, or does it influence Knights of the Slice? Fantastic question. Thank you, Gordon. Um, let's see here. I I'm absolutely uh, heavily inspired by music videos, although not contemporary music videos. Um, there was this really excellent collection of DVDs around the early aughts. This is the, what is this called here? I'm looking at it. Director Series from Palm Pictures. And this was the talk of the town uh, back in the day. And it compiled the music video works of Michelle Gondry, Spike Jones, um, Mark Romanek, all these really fantastic, This we're talking like the peak of music videos uh, there was this beautiful DVD collection that kind of put all these things together, and um, I was obsessed with them. I, I, I don't know if I still have them in my collection. This might be something I, I need to track down because they were really fantastic. Um, so I would say that block of directors and that sort of 10, 15 year period of music videos, absolutely, no question, hugely influential to any type of artwork that I do. And uh, especially Knights of the Slice, like music is infused in Knights of the Slice, whether or not it is on the surface level. I mean, there are sort of superficial things like, 
you know, the initial Hob releases all having names of different songs that I liked. Um, but, you know, it is sort of deeply embedded within Knights of the Slice, this, uh, my sort of history of the bands that I consumed and the, the uh, music videos I watched and, and things like that. Regarding Zed Star 7 and Knights of the Slice, there is a sort of aesthetic split in my mind in some ways. Um, I know probably the majority of people listening to this would more, would prefer if Knights of the Slice was integrated more within Zed Star 7 and what we do in our live streams and things like that. And I think that's a fair sort of instinct to have. Um, but to me, they are sort of separate but reference each other. Um, so when I go into the basement and I'm ready to play a live stream and do some improv music and things like that, I don't want to think about Knights of Slice at all, right? Because Knights of Slice is my day job, more or less. Um, the the amount of work it takes in logistics and e-commerce and, and planning and Photoshop and all that stuff, uh, the fun can be sucked out of that arena pretty quickly. So when I am making music, it's sort of an escape from that portion of my brain that I have to dedicate to managing Knights of the Slice as we move into the 10th year of it. So I tend to prefer not to think or reference or visualize Knights of the Slice whatsoever when I'm there writing music. Now, there's always going to be exceptions to that. I have certainly composed themes to different drops and different characters and things like that, and I'm happy to continue to do that. Um, but I would say that, you know, it works for me better as a separate entity. Um, there's a lot of baggage that comes along with Knights of the Slice and the management of that. And baggage is kind of the last thing you want to have when you're engaging in a purely creative pursuit. You know, when you have time to yourself, you're not being interrupted, you're in your full creative mind, you don't want to be thinking about storylines and print deadlines and ship dates and shit like that. That's going to be the antithesis of, you know, a good frame of mind to be able to create something in. So while I design Knights of the Slice with a pretty specific idea in my mind, usually like Gecko Knight, okay, I like this color scheme. I'm going to sit down and plot this out. Uh, I'm going to ask Matt if I can utilize his vest because I, I think it'll give this character a nice little extra pizzazz. Uh, you know, there's a sort of very deliberate, intentional, referential portion of my mind being dedicated to that. I go to write a song, I'm throwing all that out, and I'm just living in the moment. I'm just being automatic. I don't have any goals, I'm not trying to recreate anything, I'm not trying to cover a song. It is sort of this open uh, thing. <laughs> not a very eloquent way to put it, but you get the idea. Um, you know, you can sort of think deliberately or you can react automatically. And music is a sort of automatic reaction for me. I hear uh, a little drum beat and I automatically want to put something on top of that and thread these different instruments together and create something. So uh, in order to do that, you have to have a blank mind. You can't be thinking and plotting and, and uh, you know, being too deliberate because I find music will escape you the harder you, you try to sort of grab onto it. Um, not always the case, but you know, typically that's how I approach these things. So um, if there's any influence I have specifically for music, um, I, I tend to uh, sort of not bring that into the recording studio. And this goes to one of the sort of best practices that a, a class I took with uh, Phil Weinrobe uh, in music production, you know, he said, if there's a song you really like, that you like the sound of, that you want to do your own version of, don't listen to that song before you go to record. Imagine what that song sounds like in your head and then use that as your sort of point of reference. Because when you sort of let an outside stimulus in, to that creative process, it's becoming tainted. So uh, we have a song, Head Trauma, we've been trying to sort of uh, noodle on for a very long time. And the guitar riff is reminiscent of another guitar riff, according to Brendan. And 
I refuse to listen to that song, right? He might be right. It might be, it might be pretty damn close to that. But I won't go anywhere near that song that might be a little similar to this because I don't want to taint this sort of force field of creativity that we have going on. Um, you know, there, there are days where, I'm, where I listen to a Nine Inch Nails song. I'm like, I, I want to fucking do that. How do I do that? But instead of going to the studio and just playing it line by line and trying to recreate everything by ear, I just say like, okay, how does this make me feel? What is that feeling? And then carry that feeling into, you know, the, the sort of rig. Standing in front of the instruments with this feeling in your chest, where does that guide your hands? What buttons are you pressing? What speed is the track moving at? You know, all these things. So very long-winded answer, but a very good question. I would say that influence for Knights of the Slice is very deliberate. And I would say influence for making music is quite the opposite. Next up, we've got a question from Valverde. My kid asked me an unusual question most adults don't ask each other. So I figured I would extend the question to you. What is your favorite natural disaster? And he does clarify he's, you know, obviously not trivializing the human death toll with natural disasters. I got to say my least favorite would be flooding because that is what I am susceptible to where I live. Um, there are much more nastier natural disasters. I think drought is pretty fucking bad. I think forest fires are pretty fucking bad. But uh, having to contend with flooding issues, uh, it, it sort of realigns your perspective. Also, not for nothing, but seeing with my own eyes how quickly water built up pressure and just came crashing down the side of a mountain. Just witnessing that, seeing asphalt torn up from the ground by the force of a current, uh, it makes you feel pretty damn small, you know? It, you really, truly realize that whatever we have created with technologies or systems or however safe we think we are, ultimately nature is, you know, has domain over all of us and, and could crush us all instantly. And I think that, you know, I think it's helpful to ponder that because it does put you in your place. We're not immortal beings. We, we actually are pretty precarious. And if we can look at life through a lens of precarity that we are all susceptible to, doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor, uh, if nature comes calling, you're fucked. And so if we could build a system of understanding on each other's precarity and try our best to insulate the, the majority of people from these things, uh, that seems to me like a much more rewarding, fulfilling way to move into this new century uh, because the old way of doing things is, is falling pretty flat. I think we would all agree. Next up, we've got a question from Chris Wynn. Not sure if this question was asked already. What are your thoughts on electroplating a Knight of the Slice figure? Now, I pointed Chris to, and I would recommend anybody else who's interested in this, go watch the Pixel Dan interview with Brian Flynn. I think it's at New York Comic Con. And they're talking about Silverhawks, and Brian explains the process of electroplating, or vac metal, same thing, um... And I, I think it's really educational for people. I think in, in many cases, most toy collectors didn't know this stuff until they saw this interview. So I hold it in high esteem, and I would recommend anybody who's curious about this stuff to check it out. Um, briefly, there are two main types of plastics used in my manufacturing, ABS and PVC. PVC is relatively flexible, and ABS is relatively ri uh, rigid and hard. ABS, you can electroplate relatively easy and it will hold on to that vac metal color quite well pvc is quite the opposite because there is a bend to it it does not as adhere as well there is cracking there are failure rates and so generally as a rule you stay away from electroplating pvc you can do it but your failure rate is going to be enormous now failure rate means you make a hundred figures in China, they have to junk, let's say, two or three of them because the plastic comes out weird, there's warping, the paint apps are wrong, whatever the case may be. So in that batch, you have a failure rate of 3%. What did I say, three figures? So 3% failure rate. You try to electroplate PVC, your failure rate is gonna be, I would imagine, over 50%. So every two figures you make, you're throwing one of them away because 
the electroplating didn't take well, there's a crack, it's blemished, it didn't adhere to the surface well, whatever the case may be. So Brian's pretty open about the technical difficulty in what he's attempting to do with these Silverhawk figures, and also that they are going to be largely for display, not for play, because cracking will ensue. Um, I think he's a madman for trying this. I think it's also the right thing to do. Like, I, I do applaud him for doing it. But it is, uh, it's extremely difficult. Now, uh, Brian is in a, a slightly better situation where he can absorb the cost of something like that, of the failure rate, because he has multiple lines, multiple licenses. He owns his own retail stores. You know, he's got a, a bigger cushion to work with. Somebody in my position that's largely a solo outfit, um, I have a failure rate of 50% on a production line. I eat that cost and that's it. It's money out the door. I lose. I lose, lose, lose. Um, furthermore, little interesting tidbit, the recent Vector Jump, they came with a add-on item, this red metallic uh, ABS armor. That metallic was supposed to be electroplated. It is not electroplated. It is a very nice, very shiny metallic style paint, but it is not electroplated. Reason being, uh, our electroplating vendor has apparently gone out of business. It's been a really hard couple years uh, for that little sort of uh, neighborhood of businesses who, you know, one, one shop may do electroplating, one shop may be tools, one shop may do soft goods. And a lot of them have gone out of business. So uh, as I understand it, we are currently without the capacity to electroplate. And, uh, you know, I, I think we're all trying to find new vendors that can do that. But um, that's a big blow. And, you know, there's not much I can do about it being over here and, you know, just sort of ordering product and sending invoices. So I kind of, uh, I have to make do with a, a product that's not quite what I ordered. That being said, I, I do think it still looks very nice and works well with the figures. But, um, you know, that's a big question mark right now, whether or not we'll be able to do electroplating in the future. I hope so. Next question from brand new patron Ben Gillespie. Welcome, Ben. Are you planning to go to Legion's Con this year? Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, last year, I went and uh, I was kind of under the weather, so I was just there for Saturday, said my goodbye Sunday morning and left, and I actually think a one-day visit is good for me because I don't live very far away. Uh, uh, you know, probably the majority of vendors that go to that show, they have to stay in the hotel and, um, you know, they're sort of traveling quite a great deal to get there. For me, being such a short drive, it's like 50 minutes, I think. Um, I think what I will probably do is go for Saturday, set up, have a good time, say hello to everybody, and then probably head home at nighttime since it is uh, such a quick drive for me. It doesn't necessitate staying in such a lovely hotel, I think. So hopefully I'll see you there. Hopefully I'm still invited this year. We'll see. Next up from Chuck Waterman, what are your favorite diorama type set pieces for your toy setups? Um, you know, I tend to like stuff I've made myself, although once you make a diorama piece, you're sort of stuck with it. It's hard to throw those things away. Um, so I have, you know, a lot of stuff I've cobbled together from just random pieces, and, and I think I, I tend to prefer the look of hand-built stuff as well. But now that I'm looking at my uh, display case here in the workshop, there are a couple things that I use as a diorama right here that actually quite speak to me. One is, of course, Scott Page's uh, Mars Mountain playset. Um, I forget what the actual name of these are. But uh, Scott and I came up with the idea, Scott did all the hard work, of course, of a sort of Mars backdrop that was kind of like the Mark's Mountain playsets that uh, him and I both had when we were kids. And um, this he made in his shop over in Newburgh. It's pretty crazy. It's a sort of vac seal, um, uh, forgetting the name of the process, but a, a sheet of, of plastic that goes over a mold and it is hot and there's a vacuum and that gives the shape to it. So that is, you know, grade A, as good as it gets. Love that piece. Uh, I also utilize 
the Play Along Toys Armies of Middle-Earth Helm's Deep playset. This is a really great castle playset. I happen to be biased because I worked on it, you know, 20-some-odd uh, years ago for Play Along. And it is just slightly too small for three and three-quarter inch figures, but it still kind of works for them. So um, they're relatively cheap to come across, and I, I highly recommend them because there's a lot of great little diorama pieces in there. So they need a sort of a nice, uh, you know, medieval uh, backdrop. This is definitely a, a good call. Also, uh, Chris Shaler, Empire Toy Works. He is probably the best living diorama maker out there with his Rocket Station. Um, he's done numerous dioramas for me. In December, for Action Figure of the Millennia Club, we had that great stop-motion animation video from Kenneth West. That was shot on a Empire Toy Works um, little space shuttle bridge that he made for me. We were talking about, you know, the... Uh, the great Playmates Enterprise playset we never got. And we were batting around ideas, and he came up with that little uh, sort of command deck, and it's uh, quite nice. So I, I would point to him as well. Next up from Noah Black, the reveal for the Cybug blew me away, and I'm very excited to get my hands on it. That said, I was wondering about the process for changing a figure such as Saima into Cybug. Is that a new mold, or was the existing mold uh, altered? Are baggy pants out of style? Maybe. They might be might be going out of style. Um, so the process is... So there are cavities in a mold, right? These are little pockets that hold a specific piece of a figure. Not every piece is sort of connected in a mold. You have... Wherever there's part separations, you have a separate cavity. So left arm, right arm, torso, pelvis, top leg, left and right, boots... You know, these are all separate cavities. Um, you can take out a cavity and you can modify the little grooves in the mold and change them. You can make them different. So if you give them something like Saima's legs, which are roughly the same volume as the previous legs, so it'll fit within that cavity, they will go and they will take little Dremel tools with diamond tips and they will carve out that mold to fit this uh, this new addition. So this is a, a relatively cost-effective way to update a figure without committing to a complete new steel tool. You can sort of, in, in most cases, you can take uh, individual pieces and sort of modify them. And it's a great way to kind of put a new coat of paint on a figure, so to speak. So in the case of Cybug, it is uh, just modifying the old tool. It is not a new tool. Um, and it is something I think we can look forward to a couple more instances of this happening uh, later this year. Next up is Jonathan Ortiz. Uh, he says, what a great job on book one of the Jagged Age. You and the team did a spectacular job. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm itching to see where the story progresses. My question is, uh, you'd mentioned that you didn't like the manga format as it did not show the details in the illustrations. I thought manga meant a comic style where one reads from left to right as opposed to right to left. Uh, sorry, I switched that around. You get the idea. I wasn't aware that size is a distinction with manga. Are there any more distinctions between Eastern style comics and Western style comics? Um, I'm sure there are, but, but top of mind for me is the size. And as it was explained to me, I don't know if this is true or not. This might just be one of those things people decided, and it's not actually based on reality. Uh, the size of manga books is so that commuters can easily put them in their pocket when they're on the train. Uh, and, you know, in Japan you have a, a really prolific and healthy sort of manga readership, largely because you have people commuting in really nice, really uh, luxurious public transit every day. And so you see that Japanese life sort of gets tailored to that transit experience. You have almost every single subway station uh, going into a mall or a shopping area where you can get quick food that you can grab and take with you. The, the prevalence of 7-Eleven, the ability to use your, um, you know, the same card you use to access the train station, you can utilize to buy snacks and things like that. Like it's all, the, the, the sort of daily life and the daily commute is tailored around this idea. And so as it was explained to me, the smaller size of manga is 
to sort of achieve that as well. There's probably some other historical sort of reason that it is that size, you know. Um, but in any case, to me, that's the main distinction. And getting Jagged Age Book 1 in hand, I really felt deflated because I, I don't think it does the artwork justice. So moving forward, it's going to be standard Western size comics, and I will be reprinting uh, issue one with issue zero and hopefully issue two at some point. I mean, hopefully this year, but you know, these things tend to, to really drag on. Next up from Brett Barnacle, do you have a favorite type of specialized warfare troop in toys or pop culture? Examples are Desert Soldier or Snow Specialist. Also, Jagged Age manga blew me away. I dream of a nice 500 page tome of that to read one day. That, that's going to take, <laughs> that may take a, another century to get done, get to 500 pages. I don't know. Um, favorite specialized troop. My favorite specialized troop is a JSOC operator who's been arrested for prostitution and drug dealing. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that is truly the most elite class of warrior you can find. I recommend reading up on JSOC uh, arrests. I think it's a very interesting topic. In fact, I have a video planned at some point in the future that uh, plays around with some of these ideas, some of these current events. Uh, but joking aside, I, I, I sort of like desert and snow specialized characters. Um, and in particular, I would point to the UK Action Force line, the one that Palatoy put out that was uh, you know, alongside G.I. Joe. This is also another topic, Palatoy, G.I. Joe, this is going into that video at some point. Um, the desert and the snow commando characters are incredible. Uh, this line is really quite slept on over here, but it is fantastic. They even have little tiny foldable ladders that go in their backpack, if you can believe it. Th this technology, you know, that they were using uh, almost 40 years ago, uh, is totally lost art, but they're great figures and they're just simple repaints. One is in white and one is in a sort of uh, sand color with a bit of uh, spray deco on it. Um, but they're really great and I highly recommend that. Um, I, I also, you know, I like a good sort of frogman. I think that's always interesting. I liked Shipwreck quite a bit in the old G.I. Joe cartoon. Um, so yeah, I, hey, they're all good. Laser Troopers from Guts, that's another great one. I, the list goes on and on. My point is I love the troops. Speaking of Saima, question from Thomas Bucci, when it comes to retooling a Knight of the Slice figure, Desert Rat, Saima, Saima, why is it always the head, pelvis, and legs? Why are the torso, arms, hands, and feet spared? And years ago, you brainstormed a wing jetpack slash drone for the vector jump. Why not retool its detachable backpack into winged jetpack slash drone question mark um you know largely my decisions for both these things depend on what story i want to tell and to me it was very important to get back to the uh bugmen and the q conflict and find a way to sort of uh revitalize the simon tool so that sort of gave me the impetus to get these things done. There's no rhyme or reason to why certain parts are selected and others are not, uh, other than what am I trying to tell with the story, what I want the final character to look like visually, and how am I going to sort of accomplish that. Uh, regarding Vector Jump, uh, you know, I've released two Vector Jumps after much demand, and it's sold okay. It, I have made my money back on what I spent on the vector jumps, but I'm sitting here looking at quite a few of them still in stock. So part of my calculation when I do tool revisions is also, um, am I going to get my money back? You know, is there going to be a return on the couple thousand dollars that I sink into this tool? Um, for me, it would definitely be a question mark as to whether or not I saw a return on a modification to the vector jump tool. The other more important, more more sort of pressing part is I do not have a story I want to tell regarding a revision to the vector jump armor. And again, story is going to be my main motivator for any of these decisions or any changes. Um, you know, I think in some respects, 
the vector jump is a bit overpowered within the universe of Knights of the Slice. And so I tend not to use that character or that armor too much in storytelling because it, it can sort of break the game in many respects. So, you know, all that is kind of part of my calculus for why I approach something or why I get excited about, um, you know, revising a character. It usually comes down to, I have a story I want to tell and, you know, these revisions will help me get there. And as for why heads, pelvis, legs, no reason. It is on a case-by-case -case basis based on, you know, what I think the character needs or, or what I want to get done. Okay, finishing up with our last couple straggler questions. On the Discord, the Robot Assassin, what can you tell us about Tampo printing when it comes to toys? Is it worthwhile? Do you like it? I've noticed several Vector Jump figures featured Tampographs on their armor. I like them and like to see Tampos featured more often on Night of the Slice figures. Tampo printing is kind of a, a neutral thing for me. Uh, I don't love them. I don't hate them. I have done some in the past. But honestly, every cent that I spend for production has to induce a sale or induce additional sales. And I've never seen any data in my near 10 years of selling Knights of the Slice that indicate a customer is more likely to buy a figure if it has a tampo print or I'm more likely to get a new customer for adding a tampo print to something. Um, there's zero data to sort of support that. The biggest factor here is cost, right? A tampo print, depending on your setup, your arrangement with the factory, et cetera, et cetera, can add 15 cents, 30 cents to a unit cost. Now that may, that may not seem like a lot of money, but uh, it absolutely adds up given the um, relatively large orders that I tend to place. The other thing is, uh, you know, bigger companies have an economy of scale. So the more they order, the less they're gonna pay per their unit cost. That's not the case for me because I'm doing these little micro production runs, really. So every single cent of additional production cost really adds up quite a bit because the numbers are so relatively low. And not for nothing, tample printing is an additional stage of production. So if I order a standard figure of mine, it's gonna go through the extruding process where the plastic is spit out, it's gonna go through a cleaning process, it's gonna go through a painting process, and an assembly process, and then finally a bagging process. Tampo printing is a completely separate uh, function in production. So that adds an additional step, which is an additional couple days. Uh, and uh, you know, if there's troubleshooting involved, everything sort of uh, grows longer in your production timeline. And really, Knights of the Slice, if nothing else, it's a, it's a sort of fashion industry in some respects. I'm, I'm really turning and burning styles seasonally and need to sort of place an order, get the goods as quickly as possible, get them out to people, and then move on. Next question from Skywalking. Man, after a long stressful day at work, I come home and just start building. Frankenslice after Frankenslice. All of the crappy day melting away. And before I know it, it's been an hour and a half of no stress, just building. Do you ever build to relax? Um, ironically, no. And I, I actually build very little, and it's kind of sad, I think. Uh, you know, I'm so uh, sort of tied up in the world of Knights of the Slice on a daily basis to, you know, make a living that uh, I probably experience and enjoy it the least out of anybody out there. And there, there's a certain bittersweetness to that. Um, I, I think what Skywalking is describing here is probably uh, music for me, right? Come home after a long day, go down to the basement, unplug, and plug in as it were. And I think that that is a, you know, an incredibly therapeutic process for me. Which by the way, if you don't know, you can watch this musical process on twitch.tv slash Knights of the Slice. And if you happen to have an Amazon Prime account, you can subscribe to my Twitch account and I get a couple bucks for that. And that is really great. Um, there's been some very nice, very meaningful revenue coming in from Twitch. Um, not not enough to retire on, but, uh, you know, better than a swift kick in the nuts. So I always appreciate when people sub on Twitch. And uh, if for some reason you need some background music or something like that, you want to see the creative process in action, go check it out. There's tons of videos on there as well. 
Back to the Patreon for our last two questions. Quentin Russo, is there a material cybug for the current release? Uh, no, there is no material release for Rafa. For those who don't know, a material release is a unpainted or minimally painted uh, second version of a character that's been released in the store. People utilize this for building and things like that in customs. Um, no, there is no material style for Rafa. Uh, I felt like the color was too similar to a lot of other colors that uh, I have a back inventory of and would like to liquidate. Um, the other thing is, the, you know, moving forward, material styles are going to be rarer and rarer, and I'm ordering less of those. Um, it does not make sense for me to tie up open-to-buy money with inventory that is essentially the same figure, just unpainted, and that's going to sit there. Um, so this is kind of part of the new initiative of making this a tighter and leaner ship. Um, there's going to be less material styles, and in all honesty, there's going to be less opportunities outside of Patreon to purchase material styles. I think I'm ordering what I think patrons can handle, and not much more than that. So something to bear in mind as we move into 2024 and beyond. Final question of the day from Lance Tomimoto. Will CDs make a comeback in the same way that vinyl did? Um, I would say it already has, for me at least. I, I have a lot of CDs in the workshop, and I have a CD player there, and I tend to buy physical copies of albums I had when I was younger, when I see them at, you know, tag sales or things like that. Uh, reason being, I think we can all agree, it is not good to have all of your media on streaming platforms. Let's say you were a big fan of the new Willow series, which I didn't even dare watch, but uh, let's say you were, that series now no longer exists. It's It's gone. It's been pulled from there. Um, that is a very scary precipice for artwork and permanence. And uh, I think it's important to have physical copies of the stuff you like. So I have been slowly buying CDs when I see them of the albums that are very meaningful to me. I don't think there's ever going to be a gold rush for CDs the way there has been for vinyl records or uh, something like video games. But I do think it's important to sort of have and own physical copies. I do not trust these media conglomerates uh, to sort of, through goodwill, make available these wonderful pieces of art that mean so much to us. While we're on that topic, I want to talk about another concept I've been rolling around in, in the old noodle up here. Um, 2024 marks another 20th anniversary, and that is the anniversary of Gmail being launched, right? And I look at 2020, uh, sorry, 20, 2004 to 2024 as this two-decade period of free, right? Everything's free. It started with Gmail, and then it became the suite of Gmail products, which I use to this day. You know, I use Google Sheets, use Google Docs, um, you know, we saw the sort of prevalence of Facebook and that being a free platform. We saw Instagram and that being a free platform. And this was a long con. These big companies were offering these free platforms, this free technology for everybody to use under the guise that it would make humanity better and it would, you know, uh, be this great democratizing force giving anybody the ability to sort of make a spreadsheet, not having to, to buy an Excel uh, subscription. Um, but I think now we're 20 years on and we can see that we've all been ingrained to just want things for free, want technology for free, want content for free, want videos for free. And the true price of that was, you know, a huge compromise of our personal data and ourselves and our digital footprints being sold over and over again to various marketing schemes and remarketing ads and and also government databases and, and surveillance and things like that. So I think it's very important for us in 2024 and every year forward to be skeptical of anything that's given to us for free and also to stop expecting things for free. Stop expecting artists to make content for free. Stop expecting podcasts to be put out for free. Stop using Wikipedia without donating. Like, this this idea of all this free tech clearly 
put us down a very bad path of humanity. Sure, it might have been a net positive for a lot of people, but I think that the way our information systems, our news, our everything has been compromised, uh, I think we can understand this freemium model really left a huge crater on humanity and in our psyches and in the way we sort of process things. So let's move away from free stuff. Let's start supporting stuff. Let's buy physical media of the things we like, not just wait for streaming. Let's support independent artists on Patreon, on Coffee, on whatever sort of platform they may be on. If there's a YouTube creator you watch all the time, find out how to send them a couple bucks a month. Let's stop this idea of things have to be free. We, we all sort of took it for granted. We all got used to it. We all got comfortable. And now it's time to sort of shed that off because the cost was far greater than I think we could have anticipated. You know, a good example, Procreate, right? A lot of these apps are moving into subscription models and it's really quite terrible. Shopify is, is a big, you know, perpetrator of this, even though that's my, my e-commerce engine. They nickel and dime you for all these different services. You got to pay subscriptions. You'll find out you can't reach your mailing list because you have to upgrade to a premium account. And they do this all the time at the turn of a switch. None of this stuff was actually intended to be free in perpetuity. It was just free long enough for you and your livelihood to be tied to a platform in a way that you can't extract that stuff easily. So you do, it's easier to pay that $5.99 a month than to sort of restart your business. So let's get out of this notion of things should be free and let's sort of pay people what they're worth and services what they're worth. Uh, uh, yes, I, I uh, lost my thread there. Procreate, uh, they just launched Procreate Dreams, an animation app which I bought, but have not uh, dug into yet. Been trying to master far too many skills. That's the problem. Um, they charge a one-time fee. That's it. No subscription. It's not. It's not a free app. It's something you pay for. I think it's nine ninety-nine. But they're going to keep adding services and features, and they're not going to sort of charge people on a rolling basis. And and they purposely are doing this. Uh, with an intent, right? They don't want to be something like the Adobe suite of products, which are charging, you know, quite a bit monthly fees. Now, granted, it, it's a lot more manageable than uh, trying to get your hands on, you know, Photoshop. Back when I was in college, we had to sort of use less than legal means to do that. But there is something pernicious about these rolling subscriptions. And uh, so, again, not a fully formed thought of mine, but I do think we have to sort of shed off this idea that everything's going to be free technology-wise that we come in contact with. I think we just need to get used to paying for stuff. I think one of the, the biggest Achilles heel of the American viewpoint is that we want stuff cheap and we want stuff free. And that has made us into really precarious uh, lumpins, not unlike, uh, you know, the people of Wally. -E. We want our food, we want it door dashed to us, we want it in 30 minutes or less. We gotta get rid of this notion, you know, this convenience. Um, it has sort of trapped us all. So let's start paying for stuff that we like. Let's buy physical copies of things. Let's pay artists for the work they do. And uh, if we can, each take a, a meager step in the direction of any of those things, I think we're going to feel better and uh, be headed down a better path. So there you have it. End of rant, end of episode. To play us out today, of course, is going to be the house band Z-Star 7 with a song I haven't selected yet, but it'll be there. Um, other than that, thank you guys. It's 2024. I got to get back out to the workshop. I am already packing up AFOTM two-pack parcels and those are going out before you know it. All the components are here. We're ready to rock. So it's an exciting time and uh, pizza out.
Maybe. Okay. Maybe. Okay.